It's all there, black and white, clear as crystal. You stole fizzy lifting drinks. You bumped into the ceiling, which now has to be washed and sterilized, so you get nothing. You lose. Good day, sir. You're a crook. You're a cheat and a swindler. That's what you are. How can you do a thing like this? Build up a little boy's hopes and then smash all his dreams to pieces. You're an inhuman monster! I said good day! Come on, Charlie. Let's get out of here. I'll get even with him if it's the last thing I ever do. Slugworth wants a gobstopper. He'll get one. Mr. Wonka? shines a good deed in a weary world. Charlie. My boy. You won. You did it. You did it. I knew you would. I just knew you would. Oh, Charlie. This was the moment that Charlie showed Willy Wonka what he really valued in the 1971 classic Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory which was based on Roald Dahl's 1964 novel, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Charlie, despite having secretly tried fizzy lifting drinks at the behest of Grandpa Joe, valued personal integrity. It was this integrity that Willie was looking for in his successor. But there were five children, approximately the same age, in the running for the actual prize, Age and gender didn't matter much to Willie, though. What he was looking for was someone who valued the same kinds of things he did, someone who would carry on his legacy. What mattered were values, not demographics, values. And that's just the thing that David Allison discovered and is now sharing with the world. Demographics never actually predicted behavior very well. What predicts behavior is values. This week on Next in Q, David joins me to discuss when he realized demographics didn't work, what behavioral science says about how we make decisions, how the use of demographics contributes to societal problems, why using demographics for marketing is essentially like throwing darts. Surprising insights from value graphics in a variety of industries. The myth of generational demographics. When our values are formed. Regional and cultural differences in values across the world. And three ways companies can use values to create effective messaging. Hey, before we get to it today, I'm excited to let you know once again that Next in Q has been nominated for Best Podcast as part of the Support Driven Community Awards. If you are not familiar with Support Driven, they're a leading online community dedicated to supporting people's careers in customer support and transforming the customer support industry. They foster collaboration and thought leadership by enabling members to network, ask questions, share expertise, 
and help each other via various community-led initiatives like the Aspire Mentoring Program and at events like the Support Driven Expo and the Support Driven Leadership Summit. The Support Driven Community Awards is an event where the community members can vote for various category nominations. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, please consider taking a few minutes to vote for Next in Q. You'll find the link in the show notes. Remember, voting ends soon, November 30th, 2023. And while you can vote for multiple nominees per category, please note only one vote per nominee per person will be counted. Now, let's get to it. Welcome to Next in Q, the podcast for contact center and customer experience professionals. Next in Q is brought to you by Happy Two Vision. Eliminate blind spots and see right through every conversation with Happy Two Vision. Learn more at ajppitu.com. Now, here's your host, Rob Dwyer. Hey, look who's next in Q. It's David Allison. David, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me over. Uh, I'm excited to have this conversation. You and I uh, met, I don't know, a a month ago. And I knew almost immediately, this guy, I got to get him on the podcast. And um, we've gone through some some travel challenges. And yet here you are. And thank you for joining. Very happy to be here. So uh, I think I'm going to ask you to introduce yourself. You are known as a values activist, and I think there's a lot of my audience who will probably uh, tilt their head at that and go, Ooh. Mm. and so I'd like you to uh, explain a little bit about um, kind of your personal journey to what you're doing today. Okay. That's a great way to start. So I had a um, marketing firm for a very long time. And our specialty was uh, large scale real estate development projects all over the world. So we had um, condo towers, resort communities, office complexes, you name it. If it had a buy a lease or a sell at the end of it, and it had space involved, um, they would call us and say, help us name this building. We need a presentation center. We need brochures and billboards and television commercials and all this kind of stuff. But it doesn't really matter what it was because the point is like everybody listening, Um, what you do when you begin a new project for anything is you sit down and say, well, who are we doing this for? Who are the customers? And try and define them. And you use the tools you have at hand. So one of those tools is demographics. And you uh, say, okay, well, they're, you know, male, uh, primarily a male skew and they're, you know, earn $150,000 a year and they're white collar and they're married and they're empty nester and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the other batch of stuff we have to use is psychographics, which is what have they done in the past? What are their likes, preferences, wants, needs, expect, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and so then you assemble this and you'd say, okay, that's who we're doing. This who the target audience is. And then we go spend a million bucks. And uh, the interesting thing about the um, real estate development industry is about two years after you're done, you meet them because there's a ribbon cutting. And so you get to actually stand in the room and see who responded to that million, million dollars you, you, you spend. And I'd always look around these rooms. I did this for 
almost 15 years, I'd look around the room and first off, we always sold everything out, but you know, that was like maybe more the market than us. It was, I'm not going to say we were geniuses by any stretch of the imagination, but um, so you'd look around the room, you'd be like, who the heck are you people? They don't resemble the people I thought I had been doing things for. The 10 or 15% of them did. So there's like, yay, there they are. I call ended up calling them all Bob and Sally because Bob's and Sally's were like aging baby boomers who are retiring and, and looking for a condo instead of a home in the suburbs because their kids had flown the coop. And so Bob's and Sally's. So I'd look around the room and there'd be like 10 or 15% of them would be Bob's and Sally's and the rest of them would be all kinds of different people. And like, what the hell are you doing here? Like we, we didn't, we didn't make ads for you. We didn't buy in your channels. We didn't think about you when we put our strategy together, but thanks for showing up. Cause you made us look like rock stars. <laughs> and so then I, I sold the company to management and I said, you know, I, I think I'm going to try and solve that and figure out what's going on. And that took me into a very simple sort of a, therefore B therefore C. So I was trying to figure out why those people decided to be there. So really back that out. Why do humans decide things? How do our brains work? How do we make decisions about stuff? And if you just even skim the surface of behavioral science and look at psychology and sociology and, and, um, and, and psych, uh, psychiatry, um, uh, neurology, any of these fields that are sort of fall into that umbrella of behavioral science, they all fight like cats and dogs about pretty much everything except one core principle that what we value determines everything we do thousands of times a day. There's actual neurological processes in your brain where you're faced with every little decision, what you wore today, who you married, whether you're going to buy the new car, what you're going to have for lunch, the big stuff, the small stuff. The only way the human brains know how to differentiate from one between choices is to say, well, which one aligns with our values the best? And that's the one we choose. Now, you don't even know you're doing it. You don't get to opt out. It's how your brain works, but it's just happening back there. And when you choose the right one, where you get that values alignment, you then get a little hit of dopamine. And we all know what dopamine is all about, right? It's super addictive. We like our dopamine. So we all wake up in the morning, running around, trying to find values alignment thousands of times a day. So that was the aha moment. It's like, well, if that's the case, what we need to do is figure out how do you tell the values of a group of people, a target audience, before you spend the million bucks so that we can understand what it's going to take to get those people to do the things we'd like them to do? So we looked around to see if there was a solution. There wasn't one. And so we built it. Uh, and so now we can look at any target audience for anything, anywhere, and say, ah, all right, put them through our little methodology. And then we're able to say, here's the values these people have in common. So it takes that guessing away from um, what are we going to say? What are we going to do? How do we set this up? What's the position? And you started this um, by saying that people have called me a values activist. And and I'll just finish this little ramble by by answering that, um, that name. Because it, it's a, once you get into this and you realize that people are entirely a product of their values, then what that means is they're entirely not a product of their demographics. So it turns out after building this enormous global data set of ours and close to a million surveys now we've done around the world, uh, that you may have more in common with some 
a 17 year old girl who lives in Botswana uh, on the inside than you do with someone who matches your demographic precisely. And so now we can see that. And now we can see how ridiculous demographics are as a way to look at other people and how inefficient they are. And then following that train of thought, the longer we keep saying that this is the right way to do stuff and look at each other demographically, the longer we're just perpetuating these myths about what it means to be a demographic. Men are like this, women are like that, rich people like this, black people are all like this, gay people, they're all like that. Uh, and that's just leading us to nasty stereotypes and ageism and racism and sexism and homophobia. So yes, I am a values activist because I'm out to try and convince the world that values are a far, far better way for us to understand each other. And that demographics are doing a lot of damage, still need them, but we're using them in the wrong ways. We're gonna use them in the right ways so that we can end up getting to a better place together by just changing how we look at each other. That was a really, really long answer to one question. You poor guy, I'm just like, David takes over the show. <laughs> it's the perfect way uh, that this show goes. And I love it when, when people uh, can provide really great details of kind of the the origin of why they do what they do without a lot of prompting. And you did it beautifully. I mean, we've been using demographics really <laughs> in marketing and advertising for like the last hundred years, thousands, thousands and thousands <laughs> of years. And now you're telling me. Stop the it. Most part, all of it. <laughs> Let me give you some stats. Let me give you some stats to back this up. So it's not just my opinion. Um, so in order to be able to identify the values of a group of people, we needed a database. So we've now done almost a million long form qualitative surveys around the world with a team of translators in 152 languages. And we've built the world's very first inventory, if you will, of core human values that's accurate in 180 countries around the world, of about 186 countries or so last time I counted. Uh, it's more accurate than you need for a PhD. If there's a data geek listing, it's a plus or minus 3.5% accuracy, 95% confidence. This is rock solid stuff. That's, that's really good. And it's infinitely segmentable because we built it to be a matching, a, 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 it's a random stratified statistically representative sample of the population of planet Earth. So it's an exact miniature. It's like I say, we've got our own little Lego model of the world. Uh, and we can slice and dice it um, demographically. And what's true in this little model is true for the world. So if we look at the world using our model, say how similar are people inside any demographic bucket, inside a demographic cohort? How targetable is a demographic? Well, the answer varies a little bit from one demographic to the next one part of the world to the next, but on average for the world, it's about 10 and a half percent. So Gen Z, are about 10.5% similar. Men are about 10.5% similar. And people who earn $100,000 a year are about 10.5% similar. Any demographic label, which means they're about 90% not similar. <laughs> right. So this explains why when we send out a direct marketing piece and we get a 3.5% response rate, we're like, woohoo, pop the champagne. That's a 97% fail. And we're excited about it because we're using demographics which the best you could do is get to 10%. That's the best you can yeah. hope for is 10 and a half percent, right? 
So three and a half percent, that's like, that's actually like 30% of what's possible. Uh, so that's, that's a pretty good, pretty good score, I guess. But if you put people in buckets based on values, people who share similar values, well, then the alignment, the cohesion within that cohort, it goes up to the highest one we've seen is 89%. So wow. if we talk about that in terms of a buck, when you spend a buck talking to someone and you spend that dollar based on what you think you know about them demographically, you're getting about a 10 cent dollar, about 10% ROI. You spend a buck based on their values, based on value graphic cohorts, and you got a, as much as an 89 cent dollar. This is an 8X. And you haven't done anything differently except take a look at people through a different set of lenses. And one more stat just to make this all make sense. Um, I told you it's about 10.5% similar within any demographic cohort. If you look at the whole population of the world, one big giant target audience, if you're going to target the globe with a message, we're all about 8% similar just because we're breathing. <laughs> so that means the difference between a demographically defined target audience and no definition at all it's about two and a half percent better to use demographics than to just make up whatever the heck comes into your head and blurt it out. Uh, so, so what you're saying our, is we've been throwing darts. <laughs> we've been throwing darts. Uh, and it's when you think back, like anybody who's in marketing will admit this, like what you're doing is you're just spraying messages out there. Like, okay, we think it's going to, and then you're excited when three or four or 5% of them hit. And so I can go back to that room full of people at the ribbon cutting ceremonies back when I was doing my real estate thing. And look around that room and go, well, look, there's 10 or 15% of the people in here match the target audience description. That's kind of what the, you know, years later, the data is kind of lining up. But everyone in that room was actually identical on the inside. Mm. I was looking at their demographics on the outside and going, they're all, who are all these people? Because I couldn't see their values. And that's the problem is we, 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 it's a hard thing to get people to get their head around because I can't look at it and go, oh, senior, um, obviously wealthy and female. Uh, how do I tell if you're driven by ambition and personal growth or family and friends? I can't. Uh, so it's, it's a harder thing for us to get our heads around. But we're, we're there now. We have this methodology that can do that. Yeah, it's fascinating to me that... We've spent all this time trying to craft messages that are really a shot in the dark. They're going to resonate with a certain amount of people, almost regardless of how we craft the message. And, uh, and that's, that's kind of how we thought we were being successful, but there's, there's no success in it whatsoever. So let's talk about um, some specific examples of how values and, and aligning values to our message can produce results that we're looking for. I'll give you one of my favorite stories. Uh, I was speaking, uh, I don't know, seven or eight months ago, one of my uh, favorite conferences I've ever spoken at. In fact, it was the, the Pet Food Forum. And the Pet Food Forum is uh, people who make pet food for a living. 
uh, all the pet food manufacturers, everybody from Purina down to, you know, Bob and, and Joe down the street, who've got a little artisanal, they're all there, everybody in between. And they asked me to come and uh, talk about, because um, every time I speak, I go into the database and I pull data for whoever the audience is trying to understand. And I get up on stage and go, hey, those people you want to try and engage and, and, and influence and motivate, here's what you need to say to them. Um, and so uh, they wanted me to help them understand pet food um, shoppers. And that's not the story I wanted to tell you. I got halfway down the story. And I'm like, wow, that's not really the story I wanted to tell you in the first place. But I'll carry on with this one. I'll carry on with this one. Um, one of the things that we found out about pet food shoppers that they over-index on is the value of personal responsibility. They want to be the people who are making things happen. They're not passive. They don't sit on the couch and go, you know what? Somebody should... Do so they get up off the couch and they go do that thing. And they they're they're the ones who are they want to be the ones who move the needle in any aspect of their life that's important to them. And their pets are incredibly important to them. So they want to be the decider. They want to be the mover and the shaker when it comes to what's going into my pet's body and how I'm being good to my little fur child. Uh so easy, simple thing for a pet food manufacturer to do. Give them choices. Let them be the deciders. Don't say, this is one formulation that's going to do everything for your pet. They don't want that. They want a formulation for pets that have these conditions and a poor formulation for a pet that's this age and a formulation for a pet that's this active and a formulation because they want to go in there and say, I, we need this one and maybe this one once a week because now they got to make the decision. They were personally responsible for the health and well-being of this, this, this animal in their life that they love. So there's a way that personal one value of the 56 values in the value graphics database can lead you to a very simple idea. Maybe not the first time we've heard that idea, but what's different is we know it's the right idea, right? It's not like, well, we think this will work. It worked for those guys. Once we heard about it, some case study, those other guys tried it. This is the idea that will work. Give them ways to feel personally responsible and they will respond because they want their dopamine hit. They want values alignment. The story I wanted to tell you, you want another one? I'll give you another yeah, one. Yeah, absolutely. This one's about blue collar workers. Uh, and it was another conference I was speaking at. It's called Service World. It's the name of the conference. And it's for guys and mostly guys who uh, own uh, companies that employ the trades. So plumbers, electricians, drywallers, all that kind of stuff. And they wanted me to come and talk about how to recruit new people to come into the industry, because like many industries right now, they're having a tough time attracting talent. And that indus those industries in particular is generally is a, an apprenticeship program you go through and then you get ticketed and then you're able to go and do this work. So we did our study and we got up there and I found that there was one value that's super rare, really, really rare of the 56 values. It's usually way down at the bottom of the list. And for this particular cohort of people who are considering a career in the trades, it was in their top 10. Massive difference compared to the rest of us. And it's the value of service to others. Mm -hmm. They want to feel like they're making a difference in people's lives. So I'm on stage and I say to everybody, listen, you're out there saying to them, this is a great way to make more money. You're going to have more regular hours. It's a portable skill. You won't have to work shift work anymore. You're not going to have to work in the grocery store or work at the bar. Um, you can settle down. You can get a start a family. There's all kinds of great reasons you want to get in this trade. But what they're not saying is, 
And this is your chance to help people have a better life. This is your chance to make people's places where they live and work and play warm and safe and comfortable for them. And that's what they want to hear. They see themselves as a helping profession. That's what they want to be part of. So point made, carry on with the rest of talk, you know, every keynote, here's a whole bunch of, that was just one out of the many that we talked about at that, that event. And I get down off the stage and there's always a couple of people who want to come and talk to you who are too shy to put their hand. So this guy comes up and he, he says, Hey, I want to, I want to tell you something. I go, nice to meet you. He said, uh, I have uh, seven offices across uh, the Southern United States in seven different cities. And uh, in each one of them, there's a fleet of vans. And in each fleet of vans, there's one pink van because the money from that van every day goes to breast cancer research because my aunt, my, I can't remember the, his reason for that particular. I was like, wow, that's great. So that's real. He said, no, that's not the story. I was like, oh, okay. I said, the story is my guys fight over who gets to be in the pink van. I'm like, wow. <laughs> yeah. So there's, I love that story because it just closes that loop so nicely. They, they stumbled on it, the pink vans. But for that industry, if they want to get more recruits in a metaphorical sense, an allegorical sense, they need to find their pink vans. Uh, and that will have people wanting to sign up and uh, be part of the trades. Yeah, that's a really fascinating story. And I, I think from an intuitive standpoint, it's not something most of us would consider as the primary message if if you're recruiting for that industry, right? No. People often will focus on the amount of money that you can make and, you know, maybe be your own boss and kind of set as we're resorting to stereotypes right demographic stereotypes big burly blue collar guys what do they want to know about money and uh being your own boss and it's because those are demographic ideas we have about what it is to be a blue collar trades tradesperson uh and instead they're softies uh (laughs) on their big hearts yeah i i I was just somewhere the other day and i was i was at i was at a of all places i was at an art opening and there was this young guy looking at this painting standing next to me and I happened to know the artist. And so he was just like, he seemed a little out of place. He didn't like really fit in with all the other art people wearing their black clothes. So I said, Hey, what, what do you, what do you think? And we started talking for a while and uh, he's 23 years old and uh, he's an electrician uh, and he was wearing a plaid jacket and a pair of jeans. And I don't know how he found himself in an art opening, but he was clearly engaged in, uh, in this painting. And so I was telling him about this study. And he said, yeah, you know, uh, for me, it's knowing that when I go in and do work in someone's place, that that work is there for a long time, that it's, it's, I'm leaving some of myself behind and that I'm, I'm, I fixed a thing that's going to have longevity and it's going to be working for them for a long time to come. Like, <laughs> it's like, there it is again. Right. Yeah. Uh, in- if you know anybody who's a, who's in the a, a blue collar trade, you or, or any anybody listening, just go ask them. Go ask them if uh, they see themselves as being uh, in the helping a helping profession. It'd be really interesting to see what uh, what everybody has to say. You know, I moved within the last uh, six months, and I had to have some electrical work 
done on the house. And there were two main things that I had done that I know for me, and now looking back, I can see the electrician that did the work, how, how it would impact them. For me and my family, it made us safer. We had a, a, a box, a panel that had to be replaced because the brand that we had, an older brand, it's known for um, basically not, not tripping when it gets overloaded. And uh, so we had to have that whole panel replaced. And then uh, the, the wiring that had uh, come up through, uh, that was behind the stove, really, they had switched from an electric stove to a gas stove, uh, but they hadn't actually done a rewire. They had taken uh, two cords and like used electrical tape to put them yeah. together okay, yeah. and <laughs> plug this into the existing outlet. The way my dad used to do electrical yeah, stuff. <laughs> right next to the gas line. Um, right. Yeah. Which, yeah. Smart. You know, makes you feel really good. Yeah. Um, but, but I remember, right. That I wasn't known they, they discovered that while they were here. And of course I was like, yes, we have to fix that. And that's those two pieces of work, which were the primary pieces of work are not something that, uh, I'm going to all of a sudden enjoy my house more. Uh, there's no additional utility no one can see that we spent this money to do it, but I feel safer. The family feels safer. And I know that electrician walking away goes that the house is safer today than it was before I walked in. And I can I see I how that impacts them. Yeah. I helped those people. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I, I wonder, you know, not everyone who listens to this show, but I certainly have a, a large portion of the audience that, is in the, the contact center or the support space. Do you have any data that you can share on like contact center employees or support employees? Yeah, as a matter of fact, my friends at Genesis um, asked me to uh, do a study on contact center employees around the world. And uh, one data point that I can share from that, oddly enough, um, it's the same um, of the 56 values. One we've already talked about is personal responsibility. Now, here's my um, stereotypical thinking about contact center employees, um, that they come to work and they're told what to do, and they, in a robotic fashion, respond to um, uh, questions with scripts and with very little autonomy and very little ability to um, uh, be human uh, and feel personally responsible for the outcomes. Uh, and so the data would suggest that that's a big mistake that people who work in contact centers want to feel like they're actually the ones who are making things happen. And that means they need to have some autonomy. They need to have the ability to say, you know what? We're going to do it this way because it's going to be the thing that works out best for you, Mr. Customer. Um, or um, initiating new um, uh, ideas inside the organization. Let somebody other than senior management be the one who runs with the ball to see if it can get to the finish line and a new way of thinking, a new way of doing, a new kind of strategy, a new policy, a new procedure, whatever. Give them the opportunity to be responsible and to feel like they're the ones who are moving the needle. Uh, and they're going to respond in an enormously positive way. It's one of their core values for an enormous percentage of the population. 
Uh, and it was also one of the values that stuck out specifically for those who um, uh, would fall into a category we'd call high achievers. So mm -hmm. high achievers within the contact center industry displayed this particular value um, in abundance, more so than the rest of the population and more so than those who are just maybe bad pun in this industry, but phoning it in. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I love that uh, you've worked both that and uh, your your Lego model of the world in because it's clear that I value that. So good on you. Uh, <laughs> I have a question, I guess, as it relates to uh, generations, because I see this all the time, people talking about, well, uh, Gen X is like this and the boomers are like this and millennials value this, et cetera. In your work, do you see that there are differences in values across generations or are we just making that up? We're making it up. Uh, <laughs> it makes me nuts. Like I, 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 I try and control myself most of the time and be a, you know, respectable, upstanding young businessman on LinkedIn. And then I see one of those studies and I just like go on a tear. So anybody who follows me on LinkedIn, once every couple of months, you'll see me just go off on someone who's studied uh, Gen Z. And the latest one was, um, was this organization was called something really self-aggrandizing. They were called the, um, the Institute for Intergenerational Studies or something like that. I was like, okay, well, in, interesting name, but we can all call ourselves anything we want. Uh, and they'd, they'd done this study and they're big, they're big uh, and it got picked up by the media and it was being talked about everywhere. And the big conclusions were that Gen Z wanted to do business with companies, be you know patrons of companies and buy things from companies. Uh, there were three things that they were looking for. They had to be companies that um, were honest, uh, we're doing good things in the world and we're fun. And I was like, cool. Cause you know, as a boomer, I want my companies to be boring. I want them to lie to me. They could lie a lot. I would like that even better. If they could lie in a boring way, that would be stupendous. And I want them to be ruining the planet. Uh, it's, it's nonsense. Like there's, 30 million Gen Z in the United States alone. And you're trying just in the United States. And you're trying to tell me they're all the same. How, how is that even possible? Just by virtue of when they've had a birthday. Uh, it's like, it, it's just nonsensical. And then the data from the data bit from the value graphics database, close to a million surveys around the world, where we ask all these kinds of questions about how similar are you to each other? It's proven it. It's all, they're only 10% similar to each other. So yeah, anytime anybody comes at you with that stuff, you need to stand back and be really suspicious and go, what was your methodology? What was, like, how did you figure that, like, how many people did you talk to and where did you get those people from? And did you bother to ask boomers the same questions to see if it actually, um, you know, it's like a, a huge new study comes out, baby boomers love chocolate. Like, well, who, who doesn't? <laughs> Did you, did you ask anybody else? <laughs> uh, it, it, yeah. I mean, the, the generational experts out there hate me because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm popping their balloons. Uh, 
it's pretty hard to be a Gen X or a Gen Z or a millennial consultant when nobody inside that cohort is anything like anybody else. How can yeah. you have a body of knowledge about Gen Z when they're not enough similarity there for there to be a consistent body of knowledge. In fact, there have been studies done by others, large scale, multi-year studies where they found that the, the similarity between people within an age cohort is less than the similarity of people across age cohorts, that you're actually less similar to people of the <laughs> same age than you are to the people who are not your age. That's crazy. Okay, so, so I've got some some related questions, two okay. related questions. And the first one is, and, and maybe you don't know this yet, maybe you do, but do value do our values change over time? Good question. I get it a lot. Uh, and the answer is no. Um, you get your values when you're quite young. It's your late childhood, early adolescence is when it tends to happen. The sociologists refer to it as a period in human development. They call it socialization. Uh, and you get your values from whoever's really important to you at that moment in your life. It might be a parent, might be a, a teacher, it might be one of your friend's parents, it might be some combination of all of the above, who knows? Everybody, it's a little bit different, but you, you, you imprint basically someone else's values. Uh, and then they're yours for life. They're locked and loaded. Now, how you respond to the world based on those values, that'll change all the time. Uh, but the values that are causing those responses, they stay the same. So let me give you an example. Great one that we've all just lived through is, uh, is uh, the pandemic. So you know, going into lockdown and isolation, if family was one of the most important values in your particular makeup, then you were that person who was doubling down on your family. You were like Zoom call, you taught your grandma to use Zoom uh, and you were making sure that somebody was Zooming with her every day and you were calling your sisters and your cousins and your aunts to make sure they're wearing their gloves and using their hand and doing all the thing and wiping the mail off. Remember when we all had to wipe the mail because we thought there was yeah. COVID on the mail. Uh, and the grocery delivery. And the grocery delivery and we had to stand 10 feet apart from anybody and all that stuff. Uh, but it was all about family because that was an important value too. But if you didn't have value, a family as one of the most important values in your life, you didn't do any of that. Let's say instead you had a value of ambition uh, was one of the most important values for you. Well, you would probably then be doubling down on your boss and making sure your boss still knows that you're working 12 hour days and you put in time on the weekend and you did the report that nobody else wanted to do and you got it done before the deadline because you still want that promotion uh, that you talked about before we all had to go and work from home. Now, coming out of the pandemic, family person would change their behaviors again uh, because they didn't, the same set of circumstances weren't present. So mm. those circumstances would cause a different set of reactions about family but they didn't start suddenly be the, um, the ambition person. They're still the family person. They're gonna just behave differently now that the conditions are different. And the ambition person isn't suddenly gonna become a family person because the pandemic's over. They're still gonna be the ambition person, but they're gonna leave their poor boss alone and uh, you know, go back to behaving in ways that are more in line with what's going on in the world around them. So we, we change our behaviors, our emotions, our, our preferences, our likes, our dislikes, our beliefs, everything is up for grabs uh, except this bedrock fundamental level of who we are, which is our values. 
you answered the other question that I had, which was <laughs> about, you know, whether or not our values come from our family. And it sounds like uh, maybe a little bit, yeah. yes, but yes. it could be non-family members. Yeah. Did you find in your research any geographic tendencies? So in other words, uh, maybe continent or cultural um, differences in values. Yes. And it's fascinating. And it's a, another whole speech that I do is sort of a travelogue of values around the world. So we look at the world in nine regions. And inside those nine regions is the 180 countries that I referenced earlier that we have all this, this data for. And there's definitely region by region, some, some very distinct differences. Um, there's only 56 values. So I've got to get that out of the way before we go into the rest of this answer. But there's only 56 values, which is kind of cool because, you know, sometimes these days it feels like there's so many people who are trying to convince us that we're so different from each other because it serves their purposes. Where in fact, we're so similar to each other. It's, it's, it's scary. There's 88 keys on a piano. It's, it's more complex to understand how to play happy birthday on the piano than it is to understand the sum total of what's driving all of us to be the people we are all around the world, 24, seven, 365. So I think 56 is a very hopeful number and a happy number. Now, each one of those values has multiple meanings. So belonging, for example, which is a value that is uh, the number one value in the United States, there's 912 kinds of belonging. And so we have a code for each one of them in the, in the database. There's more than 8,000 codes for what those 56 values mean. But there's still just 56 values. Uh, yeah, I have another long whole story about that, but that wasn't your question. So we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna stick to your question. So in the United States, here's a great way. Here's a one one example. In the United States, the number one value is belonging, followed by family. Belonging is more important than family. That's why Uncle Bob and Aunt Sally aren't invited to Thanksgiving this year because they're on <laughs> Team Red, not on Team Blue. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Belonging is more important than family. In Canada, where I live, your neighbors to the north, it's the reverse. Family is more important than belonging. So one of the things we found most difficult to believe in the last four years of what's been going on in the United States politically is that Uncle Bob and Aunt Sally aren't invited to Thanksgiving. It's like we have political differences with each other, even within a family. But that doesn't mean you're not going to talk to them anymore. It doesn't mean they're not coming to dinner. Uh, and, and so those stories just wouldn't happen here. It's a, we have our own crazy messed up stories. So it's not that we're any better, uh, but that particular story would never happen. I'll give you another example. Uh, in the, the, the continent of Africa, um, the normal, okay, there's five values in the 56 that we call the togetherness values is community, friendships, family, belonging, and relationships. And generally speaking, most regions of the world, family and belonging are way up at the top community and relationships are a little lower down and friendship for some reason seems to be quite near the bottom. Uh, I think it's because people see friendships as a relationship or within their community. I don't know, who knows? We haven't gotten into that piece of the unpacking that piece of the puzzle, but in Africa, community is way up at the top, more important than family and belonging. It's the only place in the world where it's that high. I was like, wow, that's kind of weird. So when I was writing my last book, I talked to um, some, uh, researchers, some uh, cultural anthropologists in in, uh, in Africa and said, tell me what what's, this is what I found. How's that? How's that sit? And they're like, oh yeah, of course. I said, well, help me, help me understand. So, well, you have to understand um, 
many parts of Africa are still third world. We've got some second world parts and some first world parts, but we're still kind of struggling to get ourselves out of uh, being very, very much a, a subsistence level existence in many parts of, 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 the, of the continent. And so reliance on each other is essential for survival. Uh, you need to feel like you're part of a community because you might have dinner tonight, but maybe not tomorrow, but the guy next door has dinner that he'll share. And mm. so supporting each other and being there for each other is the way we survive. And there's an African uh, word, which I'm going to not pronounce properly. I'm going to try my best, but it's Ubuntu. And Ubuntu means I'm here because you're here and you're here because I'm here. And basically the African version of we're all in this together. And Ubuntu is, is the way Africans are um, socialized, that uh, you must feel like you're part of a community because that's how we've gotten to where we are and how we will get to where we need to go next. And family is part of the community and friendships are part of the community. And so are relationships and so, and belo so is belonging, but it's all about community. Whereas in the United States and in Canada, family is there's family and then there's a community over there uh, and I'm part of that community, but there's my family. It's whereas in Africa, it's family is subsumed by community. Yeah. So there's all kinds of fascinating stories like that as we go around the world, different, different regions who, um, yeah, their culture is an outcropping of those values. Uh, and the things we know and hear are, are definitely, you can trace them back to those values. I'll tell you one more. This is a fascinating one. In um, China, uh, like many other parts of the world, family is the top of the list, number one. Uh, but in China, the value of family behaves in a way that we don't see anywhere else in the world. And we don't see with any other value anywhere else in the world. It's the one value who that behaves this one way in this one place in the world. So family's at the top of a pyramid of values in China. Uh, it's like an uber value, an ultra value. Everything is about family and to the exclusion of all other values. So until your family is safe and secure and settled and aligned with your own version of what that means as a person, you don't pay attention to any other values at all. But as soon as that's all good, family's all good, then you move down and you start you know, looking at, at you start other values start becoming the way you make decisions and the way you move through the course of your life uh, until something happens to family. Grandpa dies. So you scoot back up to the top. You ignore all the other values and you got to make sure every, the family is all good again. And then you'll move your way back down through the other pyramid of, uh, you know, tertiary, secondary tertiary values that are influencing who you are and how you live your life. So it's interesting that it behaves this way only there. In the United States, for example, Canada, Europe, everywhere else in the world, we have four, five, six, seven values. We're working with them simultaneously. But in China, it's family and only family, and then all the other values. So it's it's they stand alone. So here's my theory. We all know that the Chinese market's been uh, hugely responsible for luxury uh, goods uh, and many of the luxury goods success stories um, over the last couple of decades. Uh, they love their luxury products in uh, in in China. Well, I have this hunch that they're not buying and displaying wealth 
or social standing when they have the latest Hermes Birkin bag or the Louis Vuitton whatever, or the, the logos that show that they're successful. Those aren't about saying, look how much money I have. They're, they're about saying, my family is all good. Mm-hmm. I can have this because my family's good. I think that's a whole different messaging system uh, that we're not really privy to because we don't, we didn't grow up in China. We don't have that way of looking at the world. I've thrown that out a couple of times in classrooms and places where I've talked and the people in the room who are from China go, mm-hmm, yep, that makes sense to me. So anecdotally, I've had that theory backed up, but it would be interesting to do a deep dive around that one day. That's fascinating. Uh, you know, we don't have a ton of time left, but I'd, I'd like to explore like, what does this mean if I'm a company and I'm trying to to get out some messaging, how can I use this information to craft and create an appealing message to to my target audience? There's three ways you can do that. Um, Great setup uh, for my final ramble. Uh, (laughs) The first way you can do that is uh, you can hire my company. That's what we do for a living is we will uh, come in and with that level, that PhD level accuracy, we'll tell you, here's exactly the stuff that these people that you want to engage, here's what they're looking to hear. Second way uh, is you can buy a copy of my latest book. And this isn't a plug on behalf of me making any money, but it's called The Death of Demographics. Uh, anybody who's ever written a book and put it on Amazon knows you make about 50 cents every time somebody sells a copy. So if you, everybody listening to this for the rest of time buys a book, I might have enough for a nice bottle of wine one day. The reason I'm bringing it up is because there's a quiz in there. There's a 15 question quiz. Uh, and that if you can get those questions out to people, uh, that you're interested in understanding, the responses will point you to one of 15 chapters in the book that dives deep into what we know around one of the 15 archetypes. Now, it's rough and ready, right? It's not as as um, uh, accurate as hiring us to do the work for you in a very statistically accurate way, because what it's the premise is that all people in the world fit into one of 15 categories, which is nonsense. Of course, they don't. Um, humans are way more complex than that. But at least it gets you going down a road where you're starting to use values to talk to people, right? I, yeah. I like to say it's like, you're, you're, you're banging your fists on the piano here. It's not very pretty, but at least you're playing the value graphics piano. You're not like using that broken old demographic guitar over in the corner with no strings on it anymore. And then the third way uh, that costs you absolutely zero is you use these three questions. We call these the telltale questions. Mm. And we've tested these around the world and all kinds of different people. And they always lead to conversations about values. Now, the onus is on you now because you ask these questions. You have to start listening for what people are really saying and then compiling that information until you start to see patterns emerge, which is what our methodology does in a more complex way. But this is a nice, simple, easy way to go. So the three telltale questions. First one. Why do you go to work? People give you all kinds of different answers for why they go to work. My creativity, it's my creative outlet, it's for my family, it's I gotta pay all my bills, it's I wanna buy a new car, uh, it's uh, I'm, I think I'm making a difference in the world. Um, all kinds of different reasons why we do this thing called going to work that takes so much of our waking hours. The second question, you've just won the lottery, why would you give away half? 
and again, you're going to get an initial layer of answers that are about who you'd give it to. Um, I'd give it to the Cancer Foundation. I'd give it to whatever. Um, you know, no, no. Why would you give away half? And you're trying to get down to these deep, motivating responses because values drive all of our decisions. So we use big things like, why do you go to work? Why would you give away half your lottery winnings? Hopefully by just digging in there a little bit, you can get people to down to that layer of what they're really doing here. And the third question is my favorite. It's a great question to use next time you have a dinner party, get your friends just a little drunk, like two or three glasses of wine, throw this one out and you'll find out a lot about your friends. Um, you get to tell yourself from 10 years ago, one thing, what would you say to yourself and why that thing? So the smart ass in the room is always going to go buy Google stock or something like that. You go, ha ha. Yeah. Okay. Good. Good for you. But really get into the question. What's the one thing you'd want your 10 years ago self to know and why that thing. And again, you get down to that really deep layer of what's really truly important to you. Uh, so if you ask those three questions often enough, like let's say you're a retailer, uh, train all your frontline office, uh, all frontline retail workers to, or all the CX uh, folks, all the all the call center people, use their own, you know, make it just part of the conversation while you're like, oh, I'm working away here, finding your file. Hey, you know what? Someone asked me this thing at a party last night. What? Uh, why do you go to work? What, what would your answer be? If you can find a way to collect that information over the course of time, and categorize it, you'll start to see patterns. And those patterns are the values of your target audience bubbling up to the surface. And even in that rough and ready way, if you could just find out that one thing that a lot of your target audience is saying over and over and over against those three questions is they're trying to be a better version of themselves. It's personal growth. Even if you just know one value, well, now you can just focus every message on trying to show how your product, service, brand, idea, whatever it is, is about helping them grow. And the guesswork's gone. And now you know, because you know it's going to make the needle move in the right direction. Yeah, I love that. Uh, David, I value your generosity in spending time with us today and going through all of this fascinating information. If somebody wants to reach out directly to you, uh, LinkedIn, is that the best place? Is there somewhere else we should send them? Uh, LinkedIn's a good spot. That's uh, of, of all the social media places we're supposed to be. That's the one I pay the most attention to. Uh, and there's two websites. Um, one is valuegraphics.com. That's the research division where we do research work. And then there's David Allison Inc. And that's my speaking and writing um, work uh, happens under that umbrella. Uh, and yeah, anybody listening wants to reach out, um, LinkedIn, you know, just pop me a note and tell me where you found me and, uh, love to carry on the conversation. Anybody got any questions? I'm as it's probably glaringly apparent. I like to talk. So I'm more than happy to uh, answer any follow-up questions that anybody might have. Well, David, thank you so much. We'll make sure that links are in the liner notes. If uh, you need that link, go check the liner notes. It's there. David Allison, thank you so much for being Next in Q. Thanks for having me. Next in Q is brought to you by Happy To and is produced by me, Rob Dwyer. If you enjoy this podcast, please, by all means, subscribe and or rate this podcast in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. But more importantly, 
please tell just one person about this podcast. Word of mouth is the best way for people to discover new content. As always, thanks for listening.